Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. I'm Jim Hemphill, Features Writer for Craft and Special Projects at IndieWire. My guest today is Writer-Director Walter Hill, who, full disclosure, I've been friends with for 29 years and a devoted admirer of for basically my whole film-going life. If you were a genre movie lover in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, there was nothing more exciting than the moment every year or two when a new Walter Hill movie would come out. Hard Times, The Driver, The Warriors, The Long Riders, Southern Comfort, 48 Hours, Streets of Fire, Extreme Prejudice, Johnny Handsome, Trespass, Geronimo, Wild Bill, the list goes on and on. To read his filmography is to list some of the greatest action movies, westerns, and noirs of the late 20th century. Hill has always been happiest working within the tradition of the western, and his brand new film Dead for a Dollar is both a celebration of the form and a subtle updating, a movie that represents new directions for both the genre and Hill himself. A sophisticated inquiry into moral values that also happens to be a rousing and very funny action flick, it's every bit as good as the classic Randolph Scott westerns by the director Walter dedicated Dead for a Dollar to Bud Bedecker. I thought talking about Bedecker, for my money one of the greatest of all western directors alongside Ford and Peckinpah and for that matter Walter himself, would be a good place to start talking about Dead for a Dollar, westerns, and Walter's approach to filmmaking in general. Here's our conversation about Dead for a Dollar, which is currently playing in theaters and streaming on all major VOD platforms. First of all, I was really touched at the end of your film to see that you dedicated it to Bud Bedecker, who's one of my all-time favorite directors. And it occurred to me, though, that when Bud was making these kinds of movies in the 50s, you know, he was in a dialogue with dozens or even hundreds of other Westerns that were coming out. And the audiences that would go to those movies would kind of instinctively understand the traditions that he was operating in and running variations on and things. And you're making this movie now at a very, very different time. And how does that affect the way you approach it? I mean, do you have to make a movie like this differently now than even maybe than you would have 30 or 40 years ago, where, when audiences aren't necessarily, uh, you know, aside from a small group of cultists, they're not as familiar with these traditions you're operating in? I think the only way to say, what did I do differently that I might not have done 25 years ago or 30 years ago? I I certainly tried to bring a couple of modern issues into the... Uh, the movie wants to valorize the tradition of the Western. There's no question about that. But at the same time, I tried to interject uh, a story about race or issues of race and also issues kind of concerning the... I don't know what you want to call it, the proto-feminist movement and... Uh, that Rachel uh, so well represents within the film. The whole thing with Bud, well, I knew Bud. Bud and I were friendly. Uh, he used to come around and uh, say hello to Carol, by the way, and he'd come around. We had lunch, I don't know how many times, and I met Bud at the Autry Museum at a, um, and Burt Kennedy, same, same time on a screening um, we had of Geronimo. The gesture at the end of my movie is not about my friendship with Bud. Um, he was a good guy, by the way. He was, uh, he was a real stand-up. I mean, he's fun to be around. He's a real stand-up kind of guy, very forceful personality. No, <laughs> no surprise, I guess. Plain spoken, but a very good storyteller. I mean, in the personal Raycon tour, as well as he obviously was a terrific storyteller as a filmmaker. The kind of salute to Bud at the end of the movie really came out of a moment that I had. Uh, I'd shot the movie, 
and it, uh, cut it together. I think it was the second time I'd looked at the whole thing. And I turned around and said to the editor, I said, you know, uh, Bud Bedecker would have liked this movie. And there was the usual, who's Bud Bedecker? And I, my editor's a very smart guy, but he wasn't up on the history of the Western. After we established who Bud was, uh, he said, well, why would he have liked it? And I said, well, it's kind of like one of his. That's the <laughs> throwing myself on the side of the good guys. But um, I, I, think it, I think in some ways it is. It's made out in the middle of nowhere. It's made very quickly, uh, not a big budget. It deals with uh, codes of honor, ethics, morality in a bleak and uh, uh, isolated social condition. And um, that was certainly the formula. I don't, I don't want to use the word formula, but that was certainly the pattern of uh, many of Bud's films, the famous cycle that he did with Randolph Scott. Although I do think about about those films, the best ones are those that are written by Burt Kennedy. So you said you uh, you made it out in the middle of nowhere. Where did you shoot this? Uh, out about about an hour and a half, hour to an hour and a half, varying on at the on the day, uh, outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico. And how was that location chosen? Both for uh, artistic and financial reasons. The financiers, uh, there's a, uh, I don't know what you call it, the rebate system that uh, uh, is pretty generous uh, in the in state of New Mexico. And that's a real inducement to, uh, I mean, if you ask me, could I have made the movie in California? I could have. But the tax policies these various states do do have a real effect on who gets the work. Going back to what you said about this movie being kind of both, you know, valorizing the tradition of the Western, but you're also dealing here with race and you're dealing with feminism. But it seems to me like the, it would be tricky in a way. The tricky part of this would be to explore those issues and you're exploring them as somebody who's alive in 2022 and still be honest to the realities of the era you're portraying. So how do you kind of strike that balance? Is that, is there, is that kind of trial and error in the writing? You know, because I could see you also, the I could see the danger being that you could overstate it, which you don't. I mean, I feel like it comes out just kind of naturally in the drama. Well, uh, it certainly was a task that I think probably the easiest way to have approached all that would be just to put it, just to put the issues in a kind of modern dialectic. and But then it would be a polemic about current politics or something, or current issues. I didn't want that. I wanted the debate to be as it might have been in 1897. It seems to me that the truth of the characters and, and what you're representing to the audience is a lot more honest that way. But again, you're within this envelope of uh, non-reality. You know, the first thing that anybody should always think about in a Western is that's not the way it was in the West. They are already a cocoon of mythology that uh, any Western that you contemplate, it's not the way life was really in the West. And um, 
it's one of the attractions, I think, of the Western is so much of the mythology has already been built. You know, something else that occurred to me watching this movie, this is kind of similar to my initial question, but, you know, it reminded me of when I first met you almost 30 years ago, you were going through a period where you were making Westerns, you were doing Geronimo and Wild Bill and Last Man Standing, which I would say is a Western of sorts. And again, in those days, you're making those movies for big studios, well-resourced, long shooting schedules, shooting on film. Now you're doing it, I'm guessing, digitally, uh, as you say, on a more Bedecker-esque shooting schedule and probably with... In, more- our, in, our, in this film, we shot it in 25 shooting days. It took us 30 days to shoot 25 days. We got knocked out a few days by covid and we got knocked around by weather, but it all came to about 25 full shooting days. And so do the, how do those different conditions change the way you approach it? And what remains the same about your job? Well, the same thing is, I mean, the job is telling the story as well as you can uh, within the conditions that are given. You know, you stage and shoot, you've got a script and you stage and shoot it, and you're mindful of um, what the, what the story demands. And at the same time, you have to be mindful of you're not going to get uh, a, a lot of time to do it. But I've always been fairly fast. Uh, uh, I'm a two-take director and move it on. And uh, I know Eastwood is famously one take, <laughs> but, but uh, Clint's more confident, I guess, than I am. <laughs> You know, John Ford always said, if you if the director wanted to own the set, the first day you shoot, print, take one and move on and fire somebody. And, and then uh, the cast would be petrified with fear that they were going to have to live with one take for, for the entire film. And, of course, everybody would be scared to death they, about their job. Um there are a lot of differences in filmmaking now than 30 years ago. Uh, the digital revolution, I mean, really is not only just in the shooting and and uh, but in, in the editing. You know, the, the the digital revolution has so changed the editorial process. I edited my first movie. We had a movieola, and it was like Hosanna and Hallelujah. When I got to do a movie, well, actually, it was my second movie, on a flatbed. And now all of that seems like a Model A, you know, the again, the digital revolution. So I think that's the biggest. And I think this needs to be said. I mean, there's there is certainly loss of certain values by no longer using film. Uh, that's been endlessly talked about, I think. But uh, you can shoot faster uh, now, and you have much more latitude to fix things in post than we had on film. I happen to agree with you. I think the fewer takes, the better. I think it keeps the momentum going on the set and keeps everybody from going stale. But, you know, there are some directors and certainly a lot of actors who like a lot of takes. And do you, in your... and not even necessarily specific to this film, but have you in your career 
been in a situation where that philosophy of yours is at odds with an actor where an actor wants more. And how do you deal with that if you have an actor who is like, well, I'm best on my eighth take or my ninth take? Well, they'll rarely put it that way. I've certainly worked with some actors that uh, wanted to do more takes. Uh, occasionally, I will indulge them. But, you know, you're the director, and uh, I always figure as long as they're hired me to direct, I'm going to make the decisions, and uh, you just move on. Well, in this movie, you've got a really fantastic cast. I mean, I feel like, which is important when you're doing this kind of, again, uh, Bedecker-esque movie that's all, you know, sort of a number of, of these uh, dialogues and dealing with these moral issues. I mean, the performances are obviously very important. And here you've got, you've got some great performances. You know, Waltz is great. Defoe is great. Brosnahan's great. They're all terrific. And what what kind of environment do you try to create, do you feel is facilitates the best work from an actor. I mean, as a director, what kind of environment are you trying to create on the set? Well, I think it's first, I think it's our, in the very first place, what your task is to create an environment that allows the actors to do their best work. And I also feel that about myself. I like an efficient set that moves right along. But at the same time, I like a relaxed atmosphere between takes. I, there are certain directors that demand a, uh, a much more military, shall we say, approach to the entire day of shooting. Um, I've never liked that. I've I've always liked. I think part of the attraction of of all this is you kind of have fun doing it, and uh, I like to be in a good humored and jocular position with the actors. And uh, but at the same time, you've got to do the work and. You buckle, buckle down and do that. But then there's a lot of time, as you know, between takes, uh, between setups, sorry. And uh, I think you can have, I wouldn't say light moments, but you can have lighter moments. And I think that, that on the whole, more, most actors uh, like that approach rather than more tightly wound situations. But I don't know, you know, I mean, look, every day, it's one of the things about being a director. You don't work with other directors. You may know some, not too many usually, but, uh, and everybody's got their own way and everybody's uh, having your own way is correct. There isn't any, you know, if there was a right way and a wrong way to make a movie, everybody at this point, I mean, what their films are uh, 100 and basically 125 years old now. If there was a right way and a wrong way, these these things would be now known. Uh, but it's uh, part of the glory of it all is it's very individual. Every film has its own sense of truth to it, hopefully. And, um, and the effect of personality, both by the director and and the cast, uh, or make make it all profoundly different one from another. Well, and in terms of finding your way of directing, I'm always fascinated by guys like you who have a very specific voice and style. But I know I know that your tastes are pretty varied. Like I know you like a lot of different kinds of movies. I know you like Vincent Minnelli musicals, and you like 
European art house films and you like Japanese cinema and, you know, and, and you like Howard Hawks and, and everything else. And so, so it's, it's interesting to me again, like, uh, did, did you ever just, you know, did you ever consider at any point in your career, oh, maybe I'll try, uh, writing an Ingmar Bergman-esque, uh, drama and putting your preoccupations into something like that? Or how did you, how did you land on this kind of specific form of genre filmmaking that you do? Well, I just think you respond to the kind of, uh, to me, it's about the kinds of movies that you emotionally responded to best when you were young. Uh, I think so much of artistic expression is trying to get back to the, shall we say, innocence, probably the wrong word, but the, um, the condition that you were in when you were make, getting first impressions of of the cinema. I remember the first time I saw Citizen Kane. Uh, I must have been about 12 years old. I watched it on TV. It came on television. And I was, even at the age of 12, I wasn't so dim that I couldn't see that this was a movie of extraordinary uh, filmmaking and power and interest. Um, and a great, great movie. And I think that you just need to stay in touch with, uh, uh, and I was always most fond of genre films, uh, particularly Westerns, particularly, uh, particularly Westerns and noir. The only movies that I can ever remember not liking, uh, genre-wise, were kid movies. I never liked family movies, no matter how young I was. Uh, I wanted to see big, tough, when I was very small, big, tough guys and beautiful women and, you know, the traditional <laughs> genre material. When you're shooting action in a movie like this, uh, you're shooting something like the, clima the climactic gunfight. Where do you fall on the spectrum between somebody like, say, you know, Hitchcock, who if he was going to do that, se that sequence, it would all be storyboarded, it would all be planned out. And then someone like, say, on the other end of the spectrum, Blake Edwards, who would show up, see what the actors are going to do, kind of decide in the moment. I mean, are you, in terms of your visual style and shooting action and staging action, are you a pre-planner or is it responding on the set or is it somewhere in between? I'd probably say somewhere in between. I'm a firm believer that action sequences start with character, that you don't get the, let the movie get beyond what is valid for the characters that have been created and are part of this story. For instance, at the end of the movie, the big gunfight at the end of our movie, if I had Kristoff leaping from building to building, I think the movie, the, the mood of the movie would have been broken. The, the movie stays within what seemed to be legitimately his physical capabilities. Same thing about the gunfight inside the hotel the simultaneous so i think it really begins with character I, i'd be the first to tell you that my kind of action is no longer really in favor shall we say uh, the um, i used to say to the cast and crew when we were making film the jokes are funny but the bullets are real much of what passes as the action cinema now the bullets aren't real in the guy, people get shot and uh, they jump up to fight again. And I mean, it's it's a different kind of comic book. If you wanted to accuse my films of being comic books, I'd say you're probably on to something. Uh, 
to a degree, but it's a different kind of comic book. I mean, people forget I grew up in the golden age, I guess, of comics, and uh, people forget how serious most of them were. I mean, many of them were anyway. I mean, it's in storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's funny now because I remember when I was a kid watching your movies and reading about them that, you know, there were some people who would look at your films in the late 70s and early 80s as though uh, you were sort of an ex exaggerated in terms of the violence and things like that. And now, I mean, those movies, you know, the Warriors would be like a neo-realist uh, <laughs> masterpiece today. I saw the Warriors, you know, I haven't, I don't look at my films after they're done, or I try not to, uh, not out of any particular modesty, but they... They make me very edgy because I can't change anything, and you always want to improve. There's uh, always something that you think you could have done better. It's just the nature of the beast of uh, uh, directors at large, I think. Uh, what you end up with is always slightly, at least slightly short of the dream, and uh, that's just the human condition, I suppose. But um, so I was in uh, Bologna, uh, this uh, early summer, and they showed uh, the Warriors in the uh, public square at Maggiore, and they had set up a huge, one of these kind of football stadium screens, and they were going to show, they showed the Warriors. They had me say a couple of words to the crowd ahead of time, and, and 8,000 people were in the audience. I mean, you know, I think this probably set a record for any of my <laughs> many of my uh, films that have been screened, um, and I was I thought God, you know, I haven't seen this. And, uh, I've seen I've seen bits of it, but I haven't really seen the movie in I guess it's forty years, and I wonder <laughs> if it'll still play, and wonder what the hell it'll look like, and uh, maybe I better figure out an escape route if things go badly, but uh, but anyway, I did did sit there. I was so taken by the size of the audience and uh, it played very well. I'm happy to say, I probably wouldn't be telling you the story if it hadn't played well, but uh, so stories are stories. Entertainment is, I mean, the fascination with stories and storytelling I think is endless and, and uh, I always say, you know, the, in the tiniest village, in Tibet, the tiny hut at the edge of a small town or village, uh, there'll be an aerial and people will be huddled around inside watching I Love Lucy or something. And uh, the human condition wants to be entertained. They want stories. Uh, entertainment always sounds, when you say entertainment, always sounds light, you know. They don't always want light stories. They They want but they do want stories. Well, and as a storyteller, you know, are you surprised by are, are, are the reactions to your films in the sense that whether it's, you know, something like The Streets of Fire, which was not that well regarded in its time, and now, you know, is every year screens here at the Cinematheque, it screens and, you know, all over the, it's considered a classic. Um, you know, are you are you surprised when those films have a life later, uh, or are you, and are you surprised when you make a movie like Forty Eight Hours that just bam hits in its moment, sticks around forever, and is kind of always beloved? And you know, I mean, how do you? I guess this, this is sort of a philosophical question is as a because there are a lot of you know 
younger and aspiring directors listening to this. And I guess just philosophically, how do you manage the temperament of being a director when the reactions are so out of your control? Well, I think, look, part of the nature of the beast to be a director is you have to have an unshakable belief that you can do it. You just, and, and the discouragement of, of uh, lack of business or poor reviews or something, you know, you cannot be, you can't take all that to, in such a way that's going to paralyze your, your storytelling in the future. I was disappointed when the uh, critical commercial reaction to the film in North America uh, of the Streets of Fire. It did uh, pretty well in Europe and did very well in Japan. Did did not do very well in the UK. As I said, any place they spoke English, the movie didn't work. But, uh, you know, it's and the other thing is it's a profound mystery. You make a film, you think uh, with the same appetites and gusto that you made the hit, yeah, the, the the movie before Streets of Fire was a huge hit. I didn't do anything any different uh, in my approach to the work. You Sometimes you catch the wave and sometimes you don't. And I guess to, to wrap things up, I'd sort of bring it back around to the Western again. I mean, you know, I feel I felt like as a fan of yours watching Dead for a Dollar, the great thing about it was you it kind of did both things that I wanted from it, which was it delivered those traditional satisfactions of the Western, um, but it didn't feel like you were repeating itself yourself. It felt like a different kind of Western for you, you know, and I'm curious where you see yourself. Well, first of all, how, if at all, your feelings about the Western have changed or deepened over the years. And are you still, is this still just, a step along the way, do you have more Westerns you want to make? Well, I, I think very much that I was the first three that Westerns that I did. Uh, people have called them a trilogy. They were about various, uh, oh, how do we put it, mythopoetic heroes, icons of the West, Jesse James, Cole Younger, uh, Wild Bill Hickok, Geronimo, uh, but one feels very bound by history uh, so that your freedom as a storyteller is, you know, a bit constricted. The uh, uh, Jesse must die hanging a picture and Bill's going to go back to the number 10 saloon and be murdered. And uh, Geronimo's going to get on a train and, and be uh, sadly sent to Florida with the other Chiricahua. So I always felt that there was a certain straitjacketing would be probably too strong a term. But uh, and the Westerns I've been able to do since have been exercises in storytelling. Uh, but you had a much greater latitude and freedom on uh, Broken Trail or this one or um, Deadwood Pilot or something. And so do you uh, do you have a preference? Do you like having that freedom or is it just different? I do like. Yes, I do like the freedom. Sure. Yeah, I think uh, I very much enjoyed the freedom. I, I don't mean to complain about the 25-day schedule and all that. I wish I had more, but, but you know, that's every director does. <laughs> but um, I had 
really complete artistic freedom. I, I uh, was untroubled in that in both during the shoot and and uh, during post production. So if you didn't like the movie, since I wrote it, directed it, and had complete artistic freedom, it would certainly be my fault. <laughs> Well, uh, luckily I loved it, so <laughs> I, I thought it was great. So uh, Thank you, Jim. Great. Well, thanks so much for talking with me, Walter. This has been fantastic. Oh, it's always it's fun. Yeah.